I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. The journey to the range may be hard, and it may be getting harder, but it ain't as hard as staying put. It's high noon for Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 316th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half dead, demented, degenerate. Ventriloquist dummy fake proxy president Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. All your beliefs, all your actions have been justified on the basis of their convenience. How easy it is to always swim with the current. Always have the cover of the popular opinion. Never upsetting anyone. Never risking anything. Always protecting your small slice of the pie. But the thing is, it's all going to go away no matter what, because the world is changing around you and you are refusing to change with it. And all of those things that you've thought and said and done because they seemed right and they seemed easy, are all proving to be dead wrong. And the truth is now, the positions you thought you held in a very safe, very powerful majority are positions held by a small and shrinking minority that you should not want to be part of because the time for those positions is running out. And if you're beginning to realize that, what you need to do is migrate back to America. And it's simple. All you have to do is leave the stupid and evil communist ideas behind. I know you didn't think they were communist ideas. You thought you were being nice. You thought you were being smart. You thought you were being responsible. Turns out you were wrong. It happens. I know society pushed you in that direction. Now you have to push back in the other direction. All you need to do is go make amends with all the people you've shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. And then come on back to America, where we will welcome you with open arms and praise and honor the fact that you decided to join the American project of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Thursday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome to the show. Now, I know what you're thinking. All of these things are just part of the big lie. They can't be true because the wrong people are saying them. But you may be realizing that more and more people are somehow joining all the wrong people. 
Maybe they've all succumbed to the crazy conspiracies in the dark corners of the Internet. Or it could be that reality convinces people on its own of what the truth is. And when people open their eyes and they open their minds, the truth simply emerges from reality and the truth is always convincing because it works, because it makes sense, because it has explanatory value. And the convoluted and complicated explanations you get from the propaganda state media, well, they don't work. And they can't explain reality. And the longer you hold on to them, the more you are exposed as a liar and someone who is uninformed and someone who is clearly out to accumulate power at the expense of the truth. And as I said, those numbers are dropping and you have to realize that you have to understand that the position you thought was safe actually is not safe. Yesterday, a new poll from Trafalgar came out, and this is Robert Cahaley's group. He has been one of the most accurate pollsters in the country over the last few cycles. And naturally, all polls are kind of a mess, particularly when we know that elections are fraudulent. But Cahaley's methods have consistently produced a more realistic picture of where the American public stands. And so he just polled nearly 1,100 likely voters around the country on how Joe Biden is handling his job as fake president. And the numbers for Joe Biden are absolutely horrendous in every possible way. Only 18% of the country strongly approves of the job he's doing. Another 18% approve, but not strongly. The disapproval, 7% disapprove, over 52% of the country strongly disapproves of the job that Joe Biden is doing as fake president. And then there's another 4.6% who have no opinion. But let's be honest. If you are saying that you have no opinion on the job that Joe Biden is doing, you don't approve. You're just scared to be one of the no-no people who actually says that. And the numbers actually do get worse for Joe Biden when you break them down. Democrats only have a 65% approval rating about Joe Biden's presidency. Nearly 25% of Democrats strongly disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing as fake president. And of course, Republicans can't stand him. 85% strongly disapprove. Only 8.2% eh, approve of the job that Joe Biden is doing. And all of them are protecting the Lincoln Project from obvious pedophilia claims. And the fact that Rick Wilson and his wife had pictures of a Confederate flag cooler on their Instagram. But no one has to talk about that stuff. The Lincoln Project. Very smart, very responsible Republicans who are just trying to do the right thing for the nation. Now, the real telling factor in this poll is Joe Biden's approval among independents. And Steve Bannon often says the independents are the proxy for the nation. Just look at the independents and you'll really have an idea of where the country stands. 
And if that's true, then Joe Biden is in a world of shit. 29.3% approval among independents. 29.3%. His disapproval sits at 62.1% with 51.2% strongly disapproving of the job Joe Biden is doing as fake president. Another 86 said no opinion, which means, again, that they almost definitely disapprove of the job he's doing and just don't want to say it because they know that's not the thing that very serious people say and they don't want to risk getting kicked out of the party of false decorum. They are very concerned about their public image and they don't want to say something so bold as, hey, the fake president really is doing a terrible job. And they don't want to say that despite the fact that everyone else can see it. We're at the point where only lunatics are still supporting Joe Biden. People who have no connection to reality whatsoever. They exist entirely on their carefully curated self-image and carefully curated public image. And they can't risk that. That's too much. Sure, they could be trying to save the nation and preserve human liberty for their children and grandchildren and their friends and family. But not if it comes at the expense of other people thinking that they don't agree with the experts or they don't trust the science or that they might have actually looked at the proof of election fraud and understood that Joe Biden is entirely illegitimate as president. But that's where we are now. And one of the reasons why we are there is because the fake White House, the fake administration is having a very hard time convincing the American public that they are doing anything in the people's interests or that they are even competent to be serving in the roles they're serving in. And that's why we've had all the talk about trying to remove Kamala Harris from the position of fake vice president. And things have gone pretty sour in her office, even beyond the obvious failures at everything she has attempted to do, and even beyond the fact that no one ever supported her in the first place. So starting from there, it has actually gotten even worse. And somehow her approval ratings are even lower than Joe Biden's. Although that polling was a few weeks old, maybe we will find out that she has had a resurgence. So last night it was announced that Simone Sanders would be leaving the fake vice president's administration. This is from Politico. Simone Sanders, the senior advisor and chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris, is expected to leave the White House at the end of the year, according to five administration officials familiar with the matter. It was not immediately clear where Sanders is heading next or when she will be leaving the vice president's office. Sanders is the highest profile exit and the second high profile one from the Harris team in the last month. Ashley Etienne, Harris's communications director, is also set to depart in the coming weeks. An official in the vice president's office confirmed the departure and said the president and vice president have, quote, known for a while, end quote. The official added that Sanders had worked for President Joe Biden for nearly three years. In a note to staff Wednesday night, Sanders confirmed the exit, writing, 
I'm so grateful to the VP for her vote of confidence from the very beginning and the opportunity to see what can be unburdened by what has been. (laughs) What the hell does that mean? I'm grateful for Harris Chief of Staff Tina Flournoy and her leadership and her confidence as well. Every day I arrive to the White House complex knowing our work made a tangible difference for Americans. Yes, it made their lives measurably worse by every single measure. I am immensely grateful and will miss working for her and with all of you. Flournoy also sent a note to the VP's team saying, Simone told the VP a couple of months ago that she'd be leaving at the end of the year. I've often said about her that no job is too big or too small for Simone. Is that a uh, compliment? And if it is, is that really the best one you can give her? One of the most publicly recognizable individuals in the Biden administration, Sanders transitioned to Harris's vice presidential team after serving as a Biden campaign senior advisor during the 2020 election. In her post, she helped Harris juggle a tricky portfolio, including not just trying to address the root causes of immigration from northern triangle countries and the federal push for voting rights, but also carry the weight of being the nation's first female vice president. Yes, that must have been so hard, especially being the nation's first illegitimate vice president. Well, maybe not the first, but definitely the most obvious one. And as far as this root causes of migration from the Northern Triangle nonsense, that was not something she actually did. What she did was fly down there to pretend that global warming at the equator was responsible for all of the illegal immigration that is clearly being caused by the fake administration's policies and the NGOs that are paid off by the global communists. It is a human trafficking industry that is supported by cartels who are making more money than they have ever made. The women who make that trip, 70% of them by some reports, are sexually assaulted on the way, as are children. And when the immigrants from all over the world, not just from the Northern Triangle countries, finally get to America, they are exploited for their political power and their underpaid labor, which is exactly like a slave trade. They are literally finding people of ethnic minorities and incentivizing criminal human traffickers to bring them illegally into our country and then disperse them across the country where they can be exploited. And we are told that this is a good thing because if you criticize it or even tell the truth about it, well, then you are racist. But back to the Politico piece talking about how great Simone Sanders and Kamala Harris were. It wasn't always smooth. Harris's office has been beset by disorder, bad press, and at times internal frictions. Outside advisors complained that she was handed policy issues that were destined for failure and not given what she needed to succeed as fake vice president. And in recent weeks, chatter has grown increasingly loud that Harris wasn't positioned well to be Biden's heir apparent in 2028 or if he opts not to run again in 2024. <laughs> I 
I mean, are they really trying to pretend that Biden might still be fake president in 2027? As if Biden could actually win a real election? He could even conduct another campaign? He didn't conduct the last campaign and he didn't win the last election. This is madness. I mean, these journalists should be absolutely embarrassed. This is just propaganda. They are trying to put the best possible spin on an obvious dumpster fire. Sanders, who traveled frequently with Harris, often was the aide who pushed back against these storylines. That included this past November when she took to Harris's defense amid the latest wave of stories about the uncertainty of her political future. It is unfortunate that after a productive trip to France in which we reaffirmed our relationship with America's oldest ally and demonstrated U.S. leadership on the world stage and following the passage of a historic bipartisan infrastructure bill that will create jobs and strengthen our communities. Some in the media are focused on gossip, she said. And what an effective answer that is. I mean, none of it is true. She embarrassed herself in France and couldn't answer questions, and was the clownish moron she always is. She also had no part in passing anything. The Republicans gave them that, because those Republicans are corrupt. And they're not the only ones. Boom. Segway. This is Breitbart today. Tool to enforce Orwellian rules. 80 House Republicans helped pass bill to fund federal vaccination database. 80 House Republicans voted with Democrats on Tuesday to pass the Immunization Infrastructure Modernization Act. Infrastructure. You got that? A vaccine database also counts as infrastructure. Literally anything they want to do can get called infrastructure. That is what we are going with now. It's almost as if the word sustainability stopped working and they realized they focus grouped the fact that Americans could actually get behind more spending on infrastructure because most Americans believe infrastructure is actually infrastructure and not all this other bullshit that they definitely, definitely do not want to pay for. But back to the article. 80 House Republicans voted with Democrats on Tuesday to pass the Immunization Infrastructure Modernization Act, which, if passed by the Senate and signed into law, would fund a federal vaccination database. According to the bill, also called H.R. 550, the government would provide $400 million in taxpayer dollars to fund immunization system data modernization and expansion a system otherwise defined as, quote, a confidential population-based computerized database that records immunization doses administered by any healthcare provider to persons within the geographic area covered by that database. Oh, so that's why it's safe. It's not individual and it's not in one big thing. And everybody just has to pretend that that's true so that the Republicans, when they give you that excuse, will seem somehow justified in casting their vote for this. The text specifically outlines an expansion of Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Public Health Department capabilities and the ability for state and local health departments, as well as public and private health care providers to share health data with the federal government. 
In a statement, the bill's main sponsor, Democrat Rep. Ann Custer from New Hampshire, said the system would be used to, quote, remind patients when they are due for a recommended vaccine, end quote, and identify areas with low vaccination rates to, quote, ensure equitable distribution of vaccines, end quote. So you got that? So it's all going to aggregate and it's only going to be based on area, but also they're going to use that aggregation to target you individually and remind you, hey, it's been three months. It's time for your next booster. That's what the subscription says. It'll be just like Netflix. Maybe we can even find some commies who want to binge their vaccine subscription. Notably, the bill has four Republican co-sponsors, Representatives Larry Bouchon, James Baird, David McKinley, and Brian Fitzpatrick. Not one Democrat voted in opposition to the bill. Shocking. Representative Mary Miller, Republican from Illinois, who was one of the 130 Republicans to vote no, told Breitbart News exclusively on Wednesday that the legislation would enable the federal government to track unvaccinated Americans who, quote, will be targeted and forced to comply with Biden's crazy global vaccination vision, end quote. These systems are designed to allow for the sharing of crucial information and maintenance of records. Do we really trust the government to protect our medical records, Miller said. The bill's author even bragged in her press release that these systems will help the government remind patients when they are due for a recommended vaccine and identify areas with low vaccination rates to ensure equitable distribution of vaccines. This was clearly a legislative tool to enforce vaccine mandates and force their Orwellian rules onto those who do not comply. Representative Byron Donalds from Florida also voted no on the bill, citing Democrats habitual pattern of reckless and wasteful spending in an exclusive statement to Breitbart News. The congressman said the legislation only serves to expand the power of the federal government and trample individual rights. This legislation would unnecessarily appropriate millions of taxpayer funds intended to expand bureaucracy in Washington, a database solely created to record and collect confidential vaccination information of Americans explicitly encroaches upon individuals fundamental right to medical privacy, Donald said. As a fiscal conservative, I cannot in good faith support legislation that contributes to the Democrats habitual pattern of reckless and wasteful spending and the intrusive heavy hand of government. Miller noted that the legislation paves the way for the government to give blue states millions in taxpayer funds to enforce vaccine mandates. According to the bill's text, the government could award grants and cooperative agreements to health departments or other local governmental entities for agreeing to adopt the new data collection guidelines set by the CDC. Any agencies hoping to receive a grant must agree to comply with security standards to protect personal health information. But of course, they won't do that. And you can imagine that there is nothing in this bill or in the Congress that will ever hold them accountable for that. And have you noticed the new trend yet? The new trend is to always pass legislation where the blue states can get a ton of money to force the citizens into doing things they already wanted to force the citizens into doing. And so once again, we have taxpayer money being laundered into communist states to continue the communist policies that are actually destroying those states. It is amazing, isn't it, that all the politicians go along with this sort of thing just because they're being paid off and threatened. Gosh, what a crazy world. The government may also develop public-private partnerships to help with 
technical assistance, training, and related implementation support. I wonder if they'll partner with the big tech companies. I bet they will. When Breitbart News asked Miller if public-private partnerships could potentially obscure data collection activities from the public, she said the government cannot be trusted to be transparent. The government has become so large, you cannot expect them to keep anything private anymore. There is hardly any congressional oversight into studies these agencies conduct, she added. Custer is urging the Senate to quickly pass the legislation, saying the pandemic showed just how underprepared the country's vaccine infrastructure is. She emphasized that the legislation would help better prepare health systems for, quote, future public health crises. She said in part, COVID-19 pulled back the curtain on our vaccination systems and highlighted the urgent need for upgrades. I'm proud the House passed my bipartisan Immunization Infrastructure Modernization Act to expand the enrollment and training of vaccine providers, update public health information technology to efficiently manage vaccine supply, and allow patients and providers to communicate securely in real time. Isn't all of that just great? Man, the one thing we need is more vaccine infrastructure. Why do we need it? No one knows. Why are they doing it for a vaccine that doesn't prevent you from getting the disease it's intended to prevent you from getting? It also doesn't prevent you from transmitting it. It also doesn't prevent you from getting seriously ill or dying. But the one thing we know we do need is way more vaccines. Miller contended that the government has no reason to collect more vaccination data on Americans. As I've said many times before, the government is not your doctor. The federal government has no business inserting itself into private health care matters of Americans. There is no reason for them to collect this data. It is an affront to our liberties and health freedoms, she said. This kind of legislation is always passed because the government has its hands in everything nowadays, often at the expense of the freedoms and privacy of Americans. This bill would allow the government to collect, study, and share your private health data. There are endless ways the government could potentially use that information against you, purposefully and accidentally. And of course, she is obviously right. This is madness. All of the stuff that they are doing leads to one end, which is the CCP style social credit score, your vaccine passport. They eventually want a digital currency, preferably a global digital currency. All of those will be contained on the same app in the same device. That device will also track you. They are going to implement environmental credits based on the things you buy and your lifestyle. They're going to judge you based on how much you comply with their green agenda. You will probably get extra points, for instance, from discontinuing the consumption of meat and instead moving over to their insect-based diet as they keep advertising in all of their propaganda nonsense across all media. Also, eventually, you're going to own nothing and like it. Remember that? That's the World Economic Forum. That's Klaus Schwab. That's the COVID-19 Great Reset. All of this is happening. It's all written down. It is all planned. To pretend that any of this is conspiracy is to make yourself an idiot. It is just real. How do you think, by the way, that people like me keep telling you what's going to happen months in advance and then it happens? I'm not just 
pulling it out of the ether. They write it down and tell people all you have to do is read it and then apply some basic discernment and logic and try to figure out why they are messaging the things they are messaging. All of it is pretext to your compliance for their grand plans, which they have and which you can simply read. And when they get to that point, well, then they just put in the social credit score and you've got the whole thing all tracked together. Every movement, every website you visit, every text message you send. And oh, you have the Hey Siri feature on your iPhone. You know that cute little feature where you just get to talk to your phone so that your phone will answer all the hard questions that you just can't figure out on your own. Well, that's listening to you. What do you think it's doing with all that? At best, it's simply training an AI so that that feature will function better. But why would anyone believe that? When you are subject to a social credit score that also contains your finances, your vaccination status, and your environmental credits, what part of your life do they not control? It touches literally everything. So when people like me talk about this situation going badly as a potential end to human freedom, this is what we're talking about. It's not that everybody is going to be imprisoned in a concentration camp, although they're going for that too. And if you don't believe me, look at Australia. But it is actually possible to be imprisoned out in the world under the illusion of freedom. And it so happens that many people already are that. What can you do once you understand that everything you do and say and think can be tracked, can be judged, and then your ability to do other things in the world can be restricted on that basis? They are going to reward you for your compliance on everything. Some people will fail to comply and they will be punished. Their freedom will be restricted. They may not be actually imprisoned, but they won't get to live any version of a free life unless they are like off in the woods somewhere. And then another set of people will comply with everything and they'll think they have the best life ever, except they won't have any freedom and they won't have any real human interaction. Everything will be faked for the basis of enhancing social credit so that you get to be the winner. And it turns out we kind of already have that. And that's what I talk about all the time. That is the party of false decorum. People are already putting that on themselves. They already want to advance through life by being the most compliant, by encouraging the most compliance. And then if they go off track every now and then, well, they can do something horribly immoral, but they can be forgiven of that horrible immorality as long as they support the state much, much harder. And we see that too. And then a couple of days ago, we have this. It appeared in Rolling Stone, but not, it wasn't really covered too much in other mainstream outlets. And some conservative outlets have covered it. But this is the headline from November 29th. This is by Andy Kroll in Rolling Stone. FBI document says the feds can get your WhatsApp data in real time. A previously unreported FBI document obtained by Rolling Stone reveals that private messaging apps, WhatsApp and iMessage are deeply vulnerable to law enforcement searches. Well, that's not good. 
As Apple and WhatsApp have built themselves into multi-billion dollar behemoths, they've done it while preaching the importance of privacy, especially when it comes to secure messaging. But in a previously unreported FBI document obtained by Rolling Stone, the Bureau claims it's particularly easy to harvest data from Facebook's WhatsApp and Apple's iMessage services, as long as the FBI has a warrant or subpoena. Judging by this document, the most popular encrypted messaging apps, iMessage and WhatsApp, are also the most permissive, according to Mallory Nodal, the chief technology officer at the Center for Democracy and Technology. And let's pause on the Rolling Stone article for one second to notice the Orwellian nature of that name, the Center for Democracy and Technology. Now, if you go check out the Center for Democracy and Technology on InfluenceWatch.org, you will find this. Left of center foundations, including George Soros's foundation to promote open society, the Ford Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation have also contributed to the Center for Democracy and Technology. But its largest donors include major technology conglomerates, including Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple and Microsoft. Isn't that great to know that big tech and George Soros are working together to inform us of this very grave threat against the platforms they themselves run. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg has articulated a privacy-focused vision built around WhatsApp, the most popular messaging service in the world. Apple CEO Tim Cook says privacy is a basic human right and that Apple believes in giving the user transparency and control, a philosophy that extends to the company's wildly popular iMessage app. For journalists, activists, and government critics who worry about government mass surveillance and political retribution, secure messaging tools can mean the difference between doing their work safely or facing imminent danger. While the FBI document raises no questions about the app's abilities to keep out hackers and snoops for hire, the paper does describe how law enforcement agencies have multiple legal pathways to extract sensitive user data from the most popular secure messaging tools. The document, titled lawful access and prepared jointly by the Bureau's science and technology branch and operational technology division offers a window into the FBI's ability to legally obtain vast amounts of data from the world's most popular messaging apps, many of which hype the security and encryption of their services. The document dated January 7th, 2021 is an internal FBI guide to what kinds of data state and federal law enforcement agencies can request from nine of the largest messaging apps. Now, wait a second. Did that say that this document is dated January 7th, 2021. Well, that's one day after the very violent insurrection. Why would the FBI update their policies on stealing users data the day after they staged a very violent insurrection and then started bringing down the hammer on American patriots? Gosh, this is confusing. What timing? I'm sure it was a coincidence and not just them trying to make legal the things they were already doing. Legal experts and technologists who reviewed the FBI document say it's rare to get such detailed information from the government's point of view about law enforcement's access to messaging services. I follow this stuff fairly closely and work on these issues, says Andrew Crocker, a senior staff attorney on the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Civil Liberties team. I don't think I've seen this information laid out quite this way. Certainly not from the law enforcement perspective. Ah, I guess it's brand new then. 
After the Cambridge Analytica controversy, when news outlets revealed that personal data from more than 50 million Facebook users was harvested without their permission to create psychological profiles of American voters, Zuckerberg sought to rebrand the social media giant as a tech company built around privacy, even though it's not at all. Even though it is exactly the opposite of that, Mark Zuckerberg made it his mission to rebrand. It's unbelievable, man. It is unbelievable. Does anyone believe this garbage journalism at all anymore? Facebook intended to make that vision a reality, largely through the design choices it made with WhatsApp, which it had acquired in 2014 for $19 billion. Today, WhatsApp is the most popular messaging app in the world with more than 2 billion users. I believe the future of communication will increasingly shift to private encrypted services where people can be confident what they say to each other stays secure and their messages and content won't stick around forever, he wrote at the time. This is the future I hope we will help bring about. In the view of the FBI, however, WhatsApp is a wellspring of private user data. According to the FBI's lawful access document, WhatsApp will provide more practically real-time information about a user and their activities than nearly every other major secure messaging tool. A subpoena will yield only basic subscriber information, the FBI document says. Presented with a search warrant, WhatsApp will turn over address book contacts for a targeted user as well as other WhatsApp users who have the targeted individual in their contacts, according to the FBI. But WhatsApp is unique in how quickly it can produce data to law enforcement agencies in response to a so-called pen register, a surveillance request that captures the source and destination of each message for a targeted individual. WhatsApp will produce certain user metadata, though not actual message content, every 15 minutes in response to a pen register, the FBI says. The FBI guide explains that most messaging services do not or cannot do this and instead provide data with a lag and not in anything close to real time. How disappointing. Return data provided by the companies listed below, with the exception of WhatsApp, are actually logs of latent data that are provided to law enforcement in a non-real-time manner and may impact investigations due to delivery delays. Yes, they are very mad at how difficult it is to get the technology companies to give them all of your data all of the time. They basically just want full-time access to everyone's data, and all they need is a warrant that they have already proven they are happy to falsify, including when they are spying on presidential campaigns. So yes, your rights are very, very safe in the hands of the FBI. A WhatsApp spokeswoman confirmed the company's near real-time responses to a pen register, but the spokeswoman added that the FBI document omits important context, such as that pen registers for WhatsApp do not yield actual message content and only apply in a forward-looking, not retroactive manner. Oh, that's much better. The spokeswoman said the company uses end-to-end encryption for the content of users' messages, which means law enforcement can't directly access that content and has defended that message encryption in courts and around the world. We carefully review, validate, and respond to law enforcement requests based on applicable law and are clear about this on our website and in regular transparency reports, the spokeswoman said. The FBI document, she added, illustrates what we've been saying, that law enforcement doesn't need to break end-to-end encryption to successfully investigate crimes. Even without the ability to legally request message content from WhatsApp, however... 
The metadata provided by WhatsApp to law enforcement captures which users talk to one another when they do it and which other users they have in their address book. The handing over of that data can have serious consequences for people who seek truly secure and anonymous messaging, such as journalists working with a confidential source or activists who face government threats and punishment. In 2017 and 2018, BuzzFeed News published a series of explosive stories about former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, the Russian embassy in the U.S., and other high-profile figures that drew on a trove of confidential documents from the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. In early 2020, a former senior FinCEN advisor named Natalie Edwards pled guilty to leaking a so-called suspicious activity reports to an unnamed reporter, and Edwards later said she was a source for BuzzFeed's reporting. A judge later sentenced Edwards to six months in prison. According to the FBI's criminal complaint in the case and subsequent reporting, Edwards and a BuzzFeed reporter exchanged hundreds of messages on WhatsApp, which they believed to be a safe place to communicate. Instead, authorities would later use those WhatsApp messages to make their case against Edwards. WhatsApp offering all of this information is devastating to a reporter communicating with a confidential source, says Daniel Kahn Gilmore, a senior staff technologist at the ACLU. And then he probably added, but we don't care about that stuff anymore. We're the ACLU. We're woke as shit. And that's almost the same as caring about people's civil liberties. Experts stress that the FBI guide isn't the full scope of law enforcement snooping powers. The document, for instance, doesn't touch on what happens when police or federal agents gain access to a person's physical device. For probably all of these platforms, if law enforcement gets its hands on somebody's device, no amount of end-to-end -end encryption is going to protect the information on the device. Nathan Freed Wessler, deputy director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, says... The other tech giant that can be compelled by law enforcement to hand over potentially large amounts of sensitive messaging data is Apple. iMessage, Apple's text message service, comes loaded on the iPhone and is used by 1.3 billion people worldwide. According to the FBI's lawful access guide, if served with a court order or a search warrant, Apple must hand over basic subscriber information as well as 25 days worth of data about queries made in iMessage such as what a targeted user looked up in iMessage and also which other people searched for that targeted user in the app. That doesn't include actual message content or whether messages were exchanged between different users. But the amount of data available to law enforcement is potentially far greater, greater than even the user data provided by WhatsApp. If a targeted user backs up their iMessage activity to iCloud, Apple's online storage platform, if that's the case, the FBI document says, then law enforcement can request backups of the target's device, including actual messages sent and received in iMessage if they're backed up in the cloud. Gosh, they're so protective of our data. While Apple describes iCloud as an encrypted service, it comes with a giant loophole. Apple holds an encryption key that can unlock user data in iCloud, and so police departments or federal agencies can request the key with a search warrant or a customer's consent to access certain user data. You're handing someone else the key to hold on to on your behalf, says Mallory Nodal of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Apple has encrypted iCloud, but they still have the keys, and as long as they have the key, the FBI can ask for it. An Apple spokesman declined to comment on the record and referred Rolling Stone to Apple's legal process guidelines, which described the kinds of data the company hands over to law enforcement under certain circumstances. Daniel Kahn Gilmore, 
the ACLU senior staff technologist, says Apple has the ability to implement an end-to-end encryption for iCloud, but the company reportedly abandoned plans to do so after federal law enforcement agencies put pressure on Apple, saying fully encrypting iCloud backups would interfere with the government's investigative abilities. Oh, no. For iCloud-based backup providers, they could, if they want to, lock themselves out of their users' data, Gilmore says. iCloud has not made that choice for iMessage backups. There are several messaging apps listed in the FBI document for which minimal data is available to law enforcement without the actual device in hand. Signal will provide only the date and time someone signed up for the app and when the user last logged into the app. Wicker will give law enforcement data about the device using the app, when someone created their account and basic subscriber info, but not detailed metadata, the FBI document says. But the number of users on Signal and Wicker, while growing, pales in comparison to WhatsApp and iMessage, which the FBI's own guide describes as two of the most permissible secure messaging apps in existence. And that imbalance raises questions about the complaints from law enforcement agencies about secure and encrypted messaging apps interfering with their ability to investigate crimes. Wessler of the ACLU says the FBI's lawful access should act as a reality check the next time police officers or FBI officials insist the encrypted messaging hampers their work. As we can see, those complaints are completely overblown and not representative of how much information they continue to have access to, even from these encrypted communication platforms, he says. Property of the People, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit transparency group, received the document via a Freedom of Information Act request and shared it with Rolling Stone. Privacy is essential to democracy, says Ryan Shapiro, Property of the People's executive director. The ease with which the FBI surveils our online data, mining the intimate details of our daily lives, threatens us all and paves the way for authoritarian rule. But that's probably no big deal because it's all a conspiracy, and I'm sure that they're telling us the full extent of their capabilities. But what else has the FBI been up to? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Forbes published this piece, and I was trying to find the right show to fit it into. I think that's going to be today. This is November 18th, 2021. Adam Andrzejewski, I hope. FBI and other agencies paid informants $548 million in recent years with many committing authorized crimes. Federal agencies paid out at least $548 million to informants working for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives in recent years, according to government audits. A few informants became millionaires, with some Amtrak and parcel delivery workers making nearly a million dollars or more. Many informants were authorized to commit crimes with the permission of their federal handlers. In a four-year period, there were 22,800 crime authorizations. This is 2011 to 2014. The FBI paid approximately $294 million from 2012 to 2018. The DEA paid at least $237 million from 2011 to 2015. And ATF paid approximately $17.2 million total from 2012 to 2015 to informants. Our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com compiled this information by reviewing federal reports. While some of the data is several years old, it's apparently the most recent available. The FBI spent an average of $42 million a year on confidential human sources between fiscal years 2012 and 2018. Long-term informants comprised 20% of its intelligence relationships. The ATF employed 1,855 informants who were paid $4.3 million annually. Therefore, on average, each informant made $2,318 for the year. And how many people knew that 
Our very responsible law enforcement agencies have spent over half a billion dollars of taxpayer money to get criminals to commit crimes that entrap other people the FBI wants to entrap. And of course, we saw that with the very deadly insurrection on January 6th. And this is yet another one of those things that seems reasonable in its description. But the description itself confuses what's really happening. Obviously, it is important for law enforcement organizations to have informants. But I think the general assumption is that those people are informing to avoid legal consequences themselves so that people who are higher up in criminal organizations can be taken down. Not so that these informants actually have the job of informing for profit and then setting up other people to be taken down by law enforcement. And all of this is yet another example of the encroachment of a police state run by the federal government in opposition to the people. A new report came out yesterday in BuzzFeed and obviously it's BuzzFeed. So assume that whatever they're exposing is a small portion of what's really happening and they're exposing it to cover up the rest of what's going on. This is Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier from yesterday in BuzzFeed. CIA files say staffers committed sex crimes involving children. They weren't prosecuted. Over the past 14 years, the Central Intelligence Agency has secretly amassed credible evidence that at least 10 of its employees and contractors committed sexual crimes involving children. Though most of these cases were referred to U.S. attorneys for prosecution, only one of the individuals was ever charged with a crime. Prosecutors sent the rest of the cases back to the CIA to handle internally, meaning few faced any consequences beyond possible loss of their jobs and security clearances. That marks a striking deviation from how sex crimes involving children have been handled at other federal agencies, such as the Department of Homeland Security and the Drug Enforcement Administration. CIA insiders say the agency resists prosecution of its staff for fear the cases will reveal state secrets. You got that? What the CIA does is so important and so secret that means that, sorry, the sex crimes against children are just going to have to take a lower priority because the CIA is so important. The revelations are contained in hundreds of internal agency reports obtained by BuzzFeed through Freedom of Information Act lawsuits. One employee had sexual contact with a two-year-old and a six-year-old. He was fired. A second employee purchased three sexually explicit videos of young girls filmed by their mothers. He resigned. A third employee estimated that he had viewed up to 1,400 sexually abusive images of children while on agency assignments. The records do not say what action, if any, the CIA took against him. A contractor who arranged for sex with an undercover FBI agent posing as a child had his contract revoked. Only one of the individuals cited in these documents was charged with a crime. In that case, as in the only previously known case of a CIA staffer being charged with child sexual crimes, the employee was also under investigation for mishandling classified material. The CIA did not answer detailed questions, saying only that the agency, quote, takes all allegations of possible criminal conduct committed by personnel seriously, end quote.
A spokesperson for the Eastern District of Virginia, where many of the criminal referrals were sent, also did not answer detailed questions, saying the district, quote, takes seriously its responsibility to hold accountable federal government employees who violate federal law within our jurisdiction, end quote. And this article goes on. You're more than welcome to go read it. I don't want to read the whole thing on here. But it's great to know that the people tasked with taking these things seriously really say they take them seriously. They say they take them very seriously. They don't prosecute them, but they say they take them seriously. And that's supposed to be enough. This is like when Jen Psaki gets asked about why Joe Biden doesn't do any of the things Joe Biden tells everyone else to do. And she says that Joe Biden follows all the protocols. Or like when Anthony Fauci explains that none of the bad things he did are things that he actually did because they have changed the definitions of what he did since then. And so it's not that thing. Joe Biden just said yesterday that it's actually not true that shelves are bare and that supply lines are a problem because the vast majority of Americans are not experiencing them. And we're to believe that that's almost exactly like that thing not happening. Now, there's another interesting CIA story from yesterday. There was a document dump about presidential briefings. And in that document, chapter nine is called Donald Trump, a unique challenge. This is by John Helgerson or Helgerson. And this document is kind of amazing. It's long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. But what it is, is basically one massive cover your ass operation for John Brennan and James Clapper. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this so you can get the vibe of what this thing is like. It's actually crazy. Briefing Donald Trump as a presidential candidate, president-elect, and president during his first few weeks in office presented the intelligence community with greater challenges than it had faced since the CIA attempted to provide similar support to president-elect Richard Nixon 48 years before. Trump was unique among the dozen presidents who took office since President Harry Truman began the briefing process in 1952 in that he had never served in the military or any branch of government. As a result, he had no experience handling classified information or working with the military, diplomatic or intelligence programs and operations. Trump had traveled abroad, but by his own account, did not often read. Like Nixon, he doubted the competence of intelligence professionals and felt no need for regular intelligence support. Trump declared that he intended to shake up the executive branch, publicly criticized the outgoing directors of national intelligence and the CIA and disparage the substantive work and integrity of the intelligence agencies. From the outset, it was clear that the IC was in for a difficult time. And of course, they couldn't allow that. I mean, who does this guy think he is? The president? Uh, oh, yeah, he's the president. The outgoing Obama administration was very supportive of the IC as it prepared to provide briefings to the presidential and vice presidential candidates in 2016. In fact, the administration was determined to arrange a smooth transition involving all government departments. President Barack Obama told cabinet officers that he appreciated the cooperative attitude and helpfulness of his predecessor, George W. Bush. Obama stressed that he wanted to everything Bush had done and more to facilitate the transition to his successor. I mean, everything and more. And by the and more, they must have meant running the Russian collusion hoax and framing Michael Flynn to make for a very smooth transition. Gosh, Barack Obama, hero of the intelligence community. Isn't that incredible? 
On 6 May, six months before the election, Obama signed an executive order entitled Facilitation of a Successful Presidential Transition, which created the White House Transition Coordinating Council. DNI James Clapper was a member. After the political party conventions, White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough chaired a meeting of senior administration officials, including Clapper, with the transition teams for Trump and his Democratic opponent, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Clapper recalled that he was, quote, struck by how sober and professional and courteous and civil the conversation was. That showed me that there are many people on all sides of the election who care about and are serious about national security, end quote. On the day following the election, McDonough convened the cabinet again to discuss the transition process. On that occasion, he invited CIA director John Brennan to participate and praised the agency and intelligence community for being well positioned to support the president and vice president elect, citing the deployment of president's daily brief briefers to New York that morning as an example for the entire government. For its part, the intelligence community had learned from experience the advantages of starting early and making preparations for the transition. More than a year before the election in October 2015, the PDB staff, headed by Isabel Patalunas, formed a transition working group. This team prepared a written plan of actions to be taken in preparation for the transition and during each stage of it, including possible pitfalls and mitigations. Probably the most concrete issue they addressed was the need to be ready to present the PDB in hard copy or on a tablet computer, depending on the preferences of whomever was elected. Gosh, that's so great that they're handling the little details, like choosing whether or not to print something out. In February 2016, Clapper established an IC transition team led by Assistant Director for Policy and Strategy, Don Eilenberger. This multi-agency group served as a forum for communicating about the transition, ensuring that all agencies received accurate information about transition developments and DNI guidance about their role in providing coordinated support to the process. Clapper created a separate ODNI team, also chaired by Eilenberger, to coordinate transition-related activities within the office of DNI. By early spring, the DNI was receiving inquiries about the anticipated intelligence briefings from the press and Congress, and that's very important. If they ask them stuff, well, then the intelligence community has to tell them stuff about what the Trump administration is doing. So they had an excuse. They weren't just leaking stuff. They were getting asked questions. In June, Clapper sent a memorandum to McDonough describing how the IC, beginning with the elections in 1952, had provided analytic intelligence briefings to the candidates for president and vice president. He noted that the White House chief of staff normally extended the offer of briefings to the candidates following the nominating conventions and the DNI or DCI before him dealt with representatives of the candidates concerning the modalities. ODNI would present a list of subjects for the briefings. The ground rules the DNI proposed to McDonough were designed to emphasize the nonpartisan nature of the process. So great. So great. They're so nonpartisan. It's almost like they weren't setting Donald Trump up at the same time, except for the fact that they were. For example, either candidate was free to request a briefing on a subject not included on the list provided by the IC. But if this was done, the candidate of the other party would be informed of the request and offered the same briefing just out of politeness, not so that the Clinton side could know what the Trump side wants to know. It was just out of politeness. 
As was customary, briefings of the candidates in the pre-election period would not include intelligence operational matters or discussions of policy. If policy questions did arise, the candidates would be referred to the assistant to the president for national security affairs. Questions or reactions from the candidates during the briefings would be held in confidence by the briefers. The IC would not comment to the press about the briefings. I mean, unless they asked or unless you had to leak something. I mean, except to acknowledge that they occurred if asked. The campaigns would be encouraged to adopt the same approach. McDonough approved Clapper's ground rules within a week, and both major party candidates accepted them without objection soon after. The administration did not offer intelligence briefings to Jill Stein of the Green Party or Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party, and neither candidate requested one. In 2016, according to Clapper, there was simply no consideration of providing briefings to third party candidates. There was precedent for providing such briefings, but it had not been done for some years. Third party candidates George Wallace and Lester Maddox were briefed in 1968 and John Anderson was briefed in 1980. When he discussed the process of briefing the candidates with his own staff or in his public appearances, Clapper went even further than the written ground rules in attempting to avoid any hint of politicization. In particular, he stressed that the briefings would be delivered by career intelligence officials rather than political appointees, ruling out principally himself and Brennan. You got that? So Clapper and Brennan were just not involved. No matter what you say, no matter what you remember, no matter what actually happened, this document proves that they were not involved. This removed an awkwardness that has arisen periodically since the beginning of the process when Truman offered a briefing to Eisenhower. When DCIs or DNIs were slated to give the briefings, candidates from the opposition party were often uneasy that political agendas were involved or the briefer was lobbying to hold on to his position. Clapper also stressed publicly that one team produced and delivered the PDB to the sitting administration while a completely separate team produces and coordinates the cross-agency effort to brief the candidates. The candidate briefing team does not coordinate with the White House. And that's so good to know. So the team briefing Trump was not the same team that briefed Obama, but the same team that briefed Trump presumably was briefing Clinton. That made sure that Trump and the White House were not connected in sharing intelligence. Now, what method did they use to prevent Clinton from sharing intelligence with the Obama White House? Now, that's a real interesting question. I wonder if the real situation was that the Obama White House just shared that freely with the Clinton campaign and that Clapper and Brennan were intimately involved in Clinton campaign activities like for instance, briefing Barack Obama and Joe Biden about the fact that the Steele dossier was paid for by the Clinton campaign and that the whole thing was a bunch of bullshit. And rather than doing anything about it, Obama and Biden just said, all right, thanks for telling us. Clapper's most important single action related to the briefings of 2016 probably was his selection of the lead briefer. The DNI believed it was important for the individual who had been briefing President Obama to continue in that role undistracted throughout the transition process until the inauguration of Obama's successor. Clapper also believed in the interest of continuity that a different single individual should brief the two candidates for president and then continue post-election with the one who became president-elect and president. Isn't that great? They get their guy in there, all familiar with Donald Trump, and then he just stays on board. For the critical task of briefing the candidates, Clapper chose Assistant Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Intelligence Integration, Ted Gistaro, or Gistaro, a career CIA analyst. Reflecting his determination to stay out of the process, Clapper turned over to Gistaro 
Complete responsibility for choosing subjects about which the candidates would be briefed, selecting the expert analysts who would assist him with the briefings and preparing for anticipated briefings of new appointees below the presidential level at the transition headquarters provided by the Government Services Administration in downtown Washington. And they show you a picture of Gustaro or Gistaro in the Oval Office with Donald Trump, which is how you know that's what really happened, exactly how it's described in this document. And so it carries on very much like this. The intent is quite obviously to make it seem like Donald Trump is ignorant, was operating on the basis of ignorance at all times. The CIA was doing its absolute best to help out this ignorant moron. And in no way were James Clapper or John Brennan involved with any of it. They delegated authority to people, and then those people delegated authority to other people. And then once you get far enough down the line, well, nobody's responsible at that point. And whatever it is, it's definitely not Clapper and Brennan. Now, before I go, I do want to just hit another subject, which is completely different. There was an editorial written by the doctor who announced the Omicron variant case in South Africa. Her name is Angelique Coetzee or Coetzee. Not sure how you say it. I think it's got to be one of those two. But regardless, keep in mind that the very scary variant is not new. They just happened to announce it the day after Thanksgiving, first thing in the morning, because that was just the right time to let the world know. So this is her editorial as chair of the South African Medical Association and a GP of 33 years standing. I have seen a lot over my medical career, but nothing has prepared me for the extraordinary global reaction that met my announcement this week that I had seen a young man in my surgery who had a case of covid that turned out to be the Omicron variant. This version of the virus had been circulating in Southern Africa for some time, having been previously identified in Botswana. But given my public facing role by announcing its presence in my own patient, I unwittingly brought it to global attention. And that probably had nothing to do with South Africa declining to purchase more Johnson and Johnson vaccine at all. Probably wasn't that. Quite simply, I have been stunned at the response and especially from Britain. And let me be clear, nothing I have seen about this new variant warrants the extreme action the UK government has taken in response to it. No one here in South Africa is known to have been hospitalized with the Omicron variant, nor is anyone here believed to have fallen seriously ill with it. Yet Britain and other European nations have reacted with heavy travel restrictions on flights from across Southern Africa, as well as imposing tighter rules at home on mask wearing, fines and extended quarantines. The simple truth is... We don't know anywhere near enough about Omicron to make such judgments or to impose such policies. In South Africa, we've retained a sense of perspective. We've had no new regulations or talk of lockdowns because we're waiting to see what the variant actually means. We've also become accustomed here to new COVID variants emerging. So when our scientists confirmed the discovery of yet another, nobody made a huge thing of it. Many people didn't even notice. But after Britain heard about it, the global picture started to change. Even as our scientists tried to point out the huge gaps in the world's knowledge about this variant, European nations immediately and unilaterally banned travel from this part of the world. Our government was understandably angered by this, pointing out that excellent science should be applauded, not punished. 
if, as some evidence suggests, Omicron turns out to be a fast-spreading virus with mostly mild symptoms for the majority of people who catch it, that would be a useful step on the road to herd immunity. We'll learn in the next two weeks if that's the case. The worst situation, of course, would be a fast-spreading virus with severe infections, but that's not where we are at the moment. Here in South Africa, what I and my GP colleagues are seeing doesn't in any way warrant the knee-jerk reaction we've seen from the UK. For one thing, we are not, at least for now, treating patients who are severely ill. Take my first Omicron case, the young man I mentioned earlier. It didn't occur to him that he had COVID. He thought he'd had too much sun after working outside. After he tested positive, so did his wife and four-month-old baby. So far, the patients who've tested positive for Omicron here have been mainly young men, a mixture of vaccinated and unvaccinated, though in our statistics, unvaccinated can also mean single vaccinated. Only yesterday, I saw five more patients who had tested positive for the new variant. They all had very mild illness. So at the moment, I'm afraid it seems to me that that Britain is merely hyping up the alarm about this variant unnecessarily. Yes, the picture might one day look different. I have yet to see older, unvaccinated people infected with the new variant, for example, and they might well present with a more severe form of the disease. But the reality is that COVID is something we have to learn to live with. Look after yourself and get your vaccines. Above all, don't panic. And that goes for governments as well. Now, aside from her terrible advice about vaccines, the rest of that is entirely reasonable. This is just another variant. The reporting and the testing are all terrible everywhere, but especially in the United States. As for figuring out which variant is which, that process is virtually non-existent. And I've gone over that before when they were talking about the uh, Lambda variant and then the Delta variant before that. There still simply are not young and healthy people being severely affected by any of these variants any of the COVID at any time. Yes, people with health concerns can be affected. Older people can be affected. But what's also happening is that the treatment protocols here are absolutely awful. With remdesivir and then a ventilator, there is a very high likelihood that anyone going through that protocol will die. That is medical malpractice. They could be given hydroxychloroquine, different steroids, ivermectin, and they could probably clear the disease rather easily, but instead they are subjected to the Anthony Fauci protocol, which kills them. We also know that everything from car accidents to murders is marked down as a COVID death if they can suspect likely COVID or if they can get a positive test from a test that has a 90 plus percent false positive rate. And I know I set the last part up by making it seem like that was the last part, but I want to do one more thing before I go. This is from Children's Health Defender, Dr. Michael Nevridakis. And recall that we recently discussed the label for the Comirnaty and the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, in quotes, not a real vaccine. It's an experimental gene therapy. But this is from uh, Tuesday. Federal judge rejects DOD claim that Pfizer EUA and Comirnaty vaccines are interchangeable. Now, the entire mythical notion that any of these vaccines are actually fully FDA approved hinges on these different brands 
different names for the same thing being somehow distinct, but also the same. It's really nothing more than a clever legal maneuver to keep the pharma companies from having liability for what these vaccines are actually doing. A federal district court has rejected a claim by the U.S. Department of Defense that the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine being administered under emergency use authorization is interchangeable with Pfizer's Comirnaty vaccine, which in August was fully licensed by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. In an order issued November 12th in Doe et al. versus Austin, U.S. Federal District Judge Alan Windsor of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida denied a preliminary injunction requested by 16 service members against the U.S. military's COVID vaccine mandate. A hearing is scheduled for September 14th, 2022. Ridiculous. However, the judge's acknowledgement that the DOD cannot mandate vaccines that only have an EUA is significant for two reasons. One reason pertains to the difference in ingredients and manufacturing process between Pfizer's EUA vaccine and the approved Comirnaty vaccine. And the other pertains to the legal difference between a fully licensed vaccine and an EUA vaccine. The latter reason would apply not just to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but also to vaccines produced by Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, both of which are authorized only as EUA products. Under the law, everyone has right to refuse EUA product. When the FDA approved Pfizer's Comirnaty COVID-19 vaccine in August, approval was accompanied by a series of confusing documents and equally confusing public statements. One such confounding statement read as follows. The licensed vaccine has the same formulation as the EUA authorized vaccine, and the products can be used interchangeably to provide the vaccination series without presenting any safety or effectiveness concerns. The products are legally distinct with certain differences that do not impact safety or effectiveness. The FDA provided no explanation as to how the licensed Comirnaty vaccine and the Pfizer BioNTech EUA vaccine could be used interchangeably despite having certain differences that make them legally distinct. There are key differences between fully licensed vaccines and those authorized under EUA. EUA products are considered experimental under U.S. law. This means they cannot be mandated and everyone has the right to refuse such vaccines without consequences. The Nuremberg Code, as well as federal law, provide that no human being can be forced to participate in a medical experiment. Under 21 U.S. Code Section 360, authorizations for medical products for use in emergencies it is unlawful to deny someone a job or an education because they refuse to be an experimental subject. It is also made clear in the FDA fact sheet provided to patients receiving any Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. It states under the EUA, it is your choice to receive or not receive the vaccine. Should you decide not to receive it, it will not change your standard medical care. However, U.S. law does allow employers and schools to require students and workers to take licensed vaccines. Another key difference between fully licensed and EUA vaccines is that under the 2005 Public Readiness and Preparedness Act, EUA vaccines are accompanied by far-reaching liability shield that protects all parties involved with the product from lawsuits. Specifically, if one is injured by an EUA vaccine, the only way to claim damages and receive compensation 
is to apply to the countermeasures injury compensation program and administrative process under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which authorized the vaccines. This scheme potentially covers only unpaid medical expenses and lost wages and creates significant barriers for filing a vaccine injury lawsuit. Notably, only 4% of claims made through this program have been compensated. To date, CICP has not compensated any claims for COVID-19 vaccine injuries. At this time, the Pfizer Comirnaty vaccine may have no liability shield, making it subject to product liability laws that allow those injured by it to potentially sue for damages. Although Pfizer asserts that the vaccine is protected under the PrEP Act as well. When the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention includes a fully licensed vaccine on its recommended vaccination schedule, the vaccine similarly enjoyed generous liability protections, but those protections are not as complete as under the PrEP Act. The FDA fact sheet states this EUA for the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine in Comirnaty will end when the secretary of HHS determines that the circumstances justifying the EUA no longer exist or when there is a change in the approval status of the product such that an EUA is no longer needed. And it really is amazing how much they are able to do when a state of emergency is declared. They can pretty much change all the laws however they like. And we have seen that repeatedly over the last two years. Now, I'm going to jump down a little bit. And if you want to read the rest of this, you can certainly do that on your own. All of these issues came to the fore in Judge Windsor's November 12th decision. As recognized by the judge under the EUA statute, recipients of EUA drugs must be informed of the option to accept or refuse administration of the product. The judge further noted that with regard to the administration of an EUA product to members of the armed forces, such a right of refusal may be waived only by the president. As noted, the DOD acknowledges that the president has not executed a waiver. So as things now stand, the DOD cannot mandate vaccines that only have an EUA. Judge Windsor also pointed out that DOD's guidance documents explicitly say only FDA licensed COVID-19 vaccines are mandated. While this would be applicable to the Comirnaty vaccine, the judge noted, quote, the plaintiffs have shown that the DOD is requiring injections from vials not labeled Comirnaty. Indeed, defense counsel could not even say whether vaccines labeled Comirnaty exist at all. And that's in a court case. Is that a conspiracy theory? Is that a conspiracy theory? Because all of us said this after reading the documents in August and we were called crazy and there were fact checks and the news just repeated over and over and over that the vaccine has been fully licensed, which makes everybody believe that the Pfizer vaccine is safe. And it also makes them believe that Moderna and Johnson and Johnson have the same approval, even though they don't. Every vaccine available on the market exists only under emergency use authorization. Every bit of this is aimed at convincing Americans to participate in a medical experiment and eliminate consequences for the pharma companies and anyone else that is coercing the participation in this experiment for the sake of continued profit for the big pharma companies. The judge also noted that the DOD, quote, later clarified that it was mandating vaccines from EUA labeled vials. Adding that, quote, in the DOD's view, this is fine because the contents of EUA labeled vials are chemically identical to the contents of vials labeled Comirnaty, if there are any such vials, end quote. 
The judge found this argument unconvincing, stating that FDA licensure does not retroactively apply to vials shipped before BLA approval. He further noted that EUA provisions suggest, quote, drugs mandated for military personnel be actually BLA approved, not merely chemically similar to a BLA approved drug, end quote, not just in terms of labeling, but also in terms of being produced at BLA compliant facilities. As the judge stated, quote, there is no indication that all EUA labeled vials are from BLA approved facilities, adding that, quote, the DOD cannot rely on the FDA to find that the two drugs are legally identical. And I encourage you to continue reading the rest of that. So what is the takeaway here? Once again, all of these institutions are breaking down under the weight of their own corruption. All of them are aimed at the same exact goals, none of which are in line with the needs or the desires of the American people. This is corruption in its fullest form, and they feel free to act this way because they are doing so at the behest of an entirely illegitimate president. And if we can't figure out how to fix that problem, then all of these problems will continue. It's almost like they tried to put an illegitimate president in that office to allow for all this crime and corruption to happen in the first place, isn't it? But that can't be. That's a conspiracy. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast.
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!